Life works the way God intends when we put Him first in every area of our lives. To help us live that life, God gave us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are principles to live by, principles that bring our relationship to God and each other closer together. They're a way to understand how God wants us to live. These commandments help us love God and love others. The sixth commandment says to not kill one another. Murder isn't always the extreme of death. It can destroy our lives slowly by manifesting in anger and hatred of others. And so God says, you shall not murder. Well, it's great to be back with you guys this weekend. If you're tuning in for the very first time, uh, here at Hope, we are in a series that we're calling 10. It's actually a series on the Ten Commandments, but what we're discovering is these aren't just a bunch of rules that God gave us to obey, even though he expects us to obey them. We're finding out that there's a relationship principle behind each one of these commandments that will allow us to go deeper in our relationship with God, deeper in our relationship with one another. And this weekend, we've actually come to a commandment that I'm sure everybody here is very, very familiar with. You can probably recite it. In fact, it's made up of just four words. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says this, you shall not murder. And the obvious, I'll just give it to you, the obvious interpretation of this commandment is we just do not have the right to take another person's life. By the way, this word murder in the Hebrew actually means a wrongful killing. And this is different from the word kill in the Hebrew. In fact, the word kill in the Hebrew is used to refer to things like capital punishment, maybe a time of war, even self-defense. Those issues are discussed other places in the Bible. But this weekend, we're talking about the wrongful killing of another human being. We're talking about murder, and we're gonna see that the relationship principle behind the sixth commandment is the principle of forgiveness. And the reason I'm calling it the principle of forgiveness is because you're gonna see forgiveness is what can keep us from ever getting into a situation where we think the only alternative is to murder someone. Now, let me just say this. I am probably not all that concerned uh, that somebody in our church is going to murder someone, although with all the stay-at-home orders, uh, being isolated with your family, uh, you may be seeing things differently right now. I've, I gotta be honest with you, there are days that I get up and Lara has that look in her eye, and I think the best thing I could actually do is hide the knives, right? Maybe that describes some of the feelings you're having right now. Uh, but I doubt you're gonna go around murdering everyone. However, let me say this. In a church as large as Hope, we have actually had, over the past few years, two murders where husbands murdered their wives. In fact, one just happened within the last year. In fact, I was at uh, the Raleigh campus uh, for the Saturday afternoon services. I ran into a couple. They'd been at Hope for about 12 years chatted with them for a little while before the service. About three weeks later, my son texted me and said, hey dad, you should check out the local news. And I turned it on and discovered that the man, the husband that I had just talked to a few weeks earlier, had shot his wife four times, murdered her, and then sat on the front porch waiting for the police to arrive and to arrest him. And right now, some of you who have just started joining us online, you've never been to Hope, you're probably thinking something like, what kind of church is this? I mean, you have never been so thankful in your life for a stay-at-home order, right? So we don't have to gather together in person. You're feeling totally safe this weekend. So what kind of church are we? Well, here at Hope Community Church, this is our mission statement. It's love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. 
In other words, we're just a bunch of broken, messed up people, starting with the pastor, right? We're trying to figure out how to be the people that Jesus wants us to be. We're trying to figure out how we can be like Jesus. But let me just say this. Anytime you get thousands and thousands and thousands of broken and messed up people gathering together every week, that's a lot of mess, that's a lot of brokenness, and sometimes happens. I'm just telling you, by the way, I want you to know, I didn't just say that. I just, I just pretended to say it to see if you were actually paying attention. But when you get a lot of broken and messed up people together, bad stuff happens. But I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Mike, there is no way under any circumstance am I ever going to break this commandment. There's no way that I'm ever going to kill anybody. In fact, you're a lover. You're not a fighter. In fact, so much, you even, when you fish, you, you practice catch and relief. And I get that because nobody just wakes up one day and thinks it is a beautiful day to go out and murder somebody. It doesn't happen that way. It's a process. It's a progression. So this weekend, I want to talk about that process. I want to talk about the stages, the steps that people would actually go through to go from loving someone to actually murdering someone. So let me show you those steps, and then we're going to talk about how we can use forgiveness to stop this process. Let me just give you the first stage. Some of these I'll spend more time on than others. Here's the first one, unconditional love. And I start there because understand that is the directive that Jesus Christ gave us for all of our relationships. In fact, this is what he said in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command. And I think it's interesting, we're doing a series on the 10 commandments, and Jesus comes along and says, let me give you a new commandment. Let me give you the 11th commandment. This is what he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he adds this, he says, as I have loved you. Now let me ask you a question. How has Jesus loved us? How did he love these disciples? He loved them totally and he loved them unconditionally. And so Jesus, here's the command, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now what I want you to see is this isn't a suggestion. This isn't something that maybe you feel like doing or you don't feel like doing. This is actually a command that we love one another totally and unconditionally as Jesus Christ has loved us. And I know what some of you are thinking, Mike, how do you do that? You can't make yourself love someone. Well, actually you can't. Because when Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus used the Greek word agape. It's that, it's that word for love that at church we throw around a lot, but basically it means this. It means seeking the highest good of the other person. In other words, this is not an emotional love. This is not something you feel. This is a decision that you make. It's a decision that begins in the mind. It's basically me making the decision, regardless of how I feel about you, I am making the decision to seek your highest good. Now understand, in all of our relationships, that's the starting point. That's the goal of all of our relationships. By the way, that's the way it works in marriage. Everybody starts out in marriage, there's this sense that there's gonna be eternal bliss, right? There's gonna be this sacrificial love. I'm gonna put my needs and, and your needs above my needs, and you're gonna put my needs above your needs, and, and that's the way it's gonna work. And that's why we say things like, hey, we're in this together. We're in this unconditionally. It's for better, for worse. It's for richer, for poor. It's in sickness and in health. It's unconditional love. That's what we're committing to. But guess what? Something happens. Not just in our marriages, but it happens in all relationships. That gets us to the second stage. Unconditional love often leads to unmet expectations. 
unconditional love, our best intentions, often leads to unmet expectations. You can even see this in the life of Jesus in his relationships. In fact, maybe, maybe you've never seen this before, but there's an interesting story in Luke chapter 7. And the story is about John the Baptist. Now, if you know the story of John the Baptist, if you know the New Testament, you know that John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin. And in Luke chapter 7, he's in prison. He's actually going to stay in prison until he, he's beheaded. So one day, you know, he's hanging out in prison. If you're familiar with John, you know that his single purpose in life was to prepare the way for Jesus. He was known as the forerunner. What does that mean? Well, let's say in the first century, the emperor was coming into town. The forerunner would go ahead of the emperor and prepare, prepare the way. They would make sure the road was smooth, the potholes were filled in, there were no branches laying across the street, that the street was actually wide enough for the emperor's chariot to go down. They were the forerunner. They were preparing the way for the emperor. In the same way, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was preparing the way for Jesus. And if you know John's life, you know that he was a very, very, very humble individual. In fact, John's the one who said in John chapter 3, verse 30, he, in reference to Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. In fact, when it came time for John the Baptist, John the Baptist, right, to baptize Jesus, John kind of had the attitude, this is stupid, this is ridiculous. Jesus, you ought to be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. What was John saying? He was saying, hey, Jesus, you're the one. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior that we've been waiting for. I'm just here to prepare the way. I'm just the forerunner. But when you get to Luke chapter 7, as I said, John is in prison, and he's in prison because he confronted King Herod about marrying his sister-in-law. King Herod had married his own sister-in-law, and John kind of got in his business a little bit. And so he throws John in prison, and John will stay there until he's executed because of it. And while he's in prison, one day some of John's friends, they come to visit him. And they're hanging out, and the conversation was kind of maybe going all over the place. And finally one of them said, hey, John, guess who's in town? And John's like, who? And somebody responded, Jesus, your cousin, he's in town. And understand, when John heard that Jesus, his cousin, was in town, you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, oh yeah, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one who can actually get me out of this situation. So John is like, hey, I'm curious. How long has Jesus actually been in town? And one of his friends says, I don't know, probably, probably seven or eight days. And John is like, well, does he know that I'm in prison? And one of the guys says, yeah, we actually had coffee at Starbucks with Jesus the other day. And we told him you were in prison, but it seemed that he already knew it. And so John's like, you mean to tell me that Jesus has been in town seven days while I'm in prison and he hasn't even bothered to visit me? So notice what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 17. He, John, sent them back to the Lord, back to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Now think about this. John has spent his entire life pointing people to Jesus. He has spent his entire life saying, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. But now he sends them this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What's going on in this story? Well, the bottom line is this. John's feelings are hurt because he had an expectation of Jesus and Jesus didn't meet his expectation. That expectation was unmet. 
He expected that Jesus would at least stop by the prison to see him, maybe to pray for him, maybe to encourage him, maybe to bring him a pizza. I mean, prison food had to be horrible, right? But he doesn't show up. And so understand, John's expectations weren't met. So understand, sometimes in our relationships, unconditional love leads to unmet expectations. And then third, unmet expectations often lead to unresolved offenses. We have an expectation. The expectation isn't met, and as a result, we're offended. And the wall goes up in the relationship. Let me show you, go back to John chapter seven, verse 22. We're back in the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. And it says, so he, and this is Jesus now, replying to the messengers. In other words, the messengers that John sent to Jesus. Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he says this in verse 23, blessed. By the way, this word blessed is the exact same Greek word that's translated happy. That's what it means. So think of it this way. Happy is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And it's as if Jesus dropped the mic. Now what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying Blessed or happy is, any, is anyone who doesn't get offended. Happy is anyone who doesn't get their feelings hurt because of me. My point is simply this. Often in our relationships, unmet expectations lead to offense. We see this all the time. We get married, we have certain expectations of what marriage is going to be like. And I've often said, most of us, if we're honest, we get married for the wrong reason. We get married, we walk into marriage thinking, what am I gonna get out of it? What's it gonna do for me? How's it gonna make me a better person? How is it gonna complete my life? We have very, very high expectations. But I've said my whole life, I've been married 41 years, that the key to a happy marriage is low expectations. I'm telling you, the only way that Laura could ever stay with me for 41 years is that she has very, very low expectations. Now listen, if I pick up my dirty underwear one day and put them in the clothes hamper, Laura considers that a good day. But a lot of people, they have really, really high expectations. I'll never forget one time I was meeting with a couple and we were going over vows that they had written for their marriage. And I mean, they were going through like, I'm gonna get a foot rub every night, you're gonna rub my shoulders every third day. I mean, it was very, very specific, their vows, what they were committing to. And I remember looking at them and say, you may, you may wanna tone that down a little bit because you're, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. You're just setting yourself up for failure. But when we have expectations in our marriages and those expectations aren't met, what happens? We get offended. But it's not just in marriage, you know, we have expectation in a friendship, that our friend's gonna be faithful, that our friend's gonna be loyal, that they're gonna be right there when we need them, and if they're not there when we need them, we're offended. Not only that, we have expectation that our boss, that our employee's gonna treat us, our employer's gonna treat us fairly, and, and, and they're gonna recognize our hard work. But then a promotion opens up at work, and you don't get the promotion, and you get overlooked, and you're offended. Or have you ever sacrificed and searched high and low to buy someone the perfect gift and you give them the gift and you can't wait to see what their response is going to be and they open the gift or they receive the gift and they don't seem to appreciate the gift as much as you thought they were going to appreciate the gift and we're offended. This just happened with Laura and I recently. We were sitting at home and, 
and we were watching the news and they were talking about how Americans are gaining so much weight during this time of being quarantined, being stuck at home. And, and Lauren looked at me and she says, I don't think I've gained any weight. Have I gained any weight? Now, let me just set this up. As I said, I've been married 41 years. This is a minefield. I know the answer to this question. And men, if you don't know it, here's the answer to the question. Honey, have I gained any weight? The answer is simply this, no. And then immediately leave the room. See, I know that. Don't allow for a follow-up question, right? But that day I wasn't bringing my A game. And so Laura says, have I gained weight? And I said, I don't know. Why don't you weigh yourself? Not the right answer. And for the next three days, it was like, well, obviously I've gained weight because you told me I need to weigh myself. And I said, well, you don't need to weigh yourself. Do your genes still fit? Wrong answer, right? I did it again, right? But see, my point is we can get offended over the weirdest thing, but it's a part of being in relationships. Here's the fourth stage, unresolved offense. In other words, when these offenses are created, but we don't resolve them, we don't work through them, they often lead to unbridled anger. For example, the very, very first murder in the Bible was because of anger. It's between Cain and Abel. You may remember the story. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. Now look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. But what I want you to notice, it started with anger. Now let me just say something about anger. Anger is a God-given emotion. And this is what's interesting. Throughout the Bible, you will see there were times when God got angry. If you read the New Testament, you will see there were times when Jesus got angry. In fact, when he cleansed the temple, he was very, very angry, but they didn't sin. So this is what I know about anger. You can be angry, but you don't have to sin. As a matter of fact, Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. He says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, Paul says, listen, it's okay to be angry. Now let me ask you a question. Why is it okay to be angry? It's just because there are times in our life where we really don't have any other choice but to be angry. I mean, if you discover that your spouse is cheating on you, anger is a proper response. If you're sitting in a meeting at work and you discover that someone stole your idea and somehow they got the benefit and the credit of, see, anger is probably gonna be the correct response. If you, are, you have a close friend and they betray you, they stab you in the back, we've all been there, Anger is the right response it's because, see, that kind of hurt, when you go through situations like that, it is going to produce anger. Now, Paul was an apostle. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He was an apostle, but he has some great insight, and he says this, hey, go ahead and feel angry because you can't control how you feel anyway. It was as if he was saying this, it's okay to feel anything, but it's not okay to do anything. In fact, this is what I think he was saying. I think he was saying, we are never to allow our anger to control what we do, what we say, the decisions we make. And I gotta be honest, from a human perspective, that's the tough part. Because I know there are times where I've gotten angry and I've gotten into a lot of trouble because I acted on my anger. I said things I wish I could have unsaid. I did things I wish I could have undone. 
I made decisions I wish I could have gone back and unmade, and it was because I was angry, I thought I was justified in my anger, and as a result, I just assumed I was justified in my actions. But Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. You got, you got to separate the two. There's the anger, and then there's the action. And we can't allow our anger to control what we do, what we say, what we decide. And then Paul goes on in verse 26, and he gives us a great insight that helps us make sure that our anger doesn't control us. He says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, Paul says this, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be angry because you've been hurt. But it's not okay to carry your hurt, to carry your anger around for so long that it begins to affect your actions. It begins to affect your attitude. And so Paul says, to avoid that happening, deal with your anger as soon as possible. Deal with your anger in a timely manner. In fact, he even says this, do it before the sun goes down. In other words, before you go to bed, make sure you deal with your anger before the sun even sets. And again, I'm not sure he meant that literally because as I've said before, if you live in Alaska, you could be angry all spring, right? Because the sun's not gonna set. I think his point is clear. Don't carry around unbridled anger. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's important because you carry it around long enough, eventually it's gonna cause us to sin. In fact, I'm telling you, when we are angry, our sin potential, it goes through the roof. Because eventually, it's gonna cause us to do and say and decide things that later on we're gonna look back and we're gonna wish we could undo. So understand, unresolved offense leads to unbridled anger And what does unbridled anger lead to? Well, here's the fifth stage. Unbridled anger often leads to uncontrollable hate. You can see this in the story of Joseph. You may remember the story of Joseph. He was one of 12 boys. He was daddy's favorite. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 37, verse 4. When his brothers, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, remember he got his special coat of many colors? They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now to make matters worse, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, by the way, this was Joseph's dream, something he probably should have kept to himself. His dream was, and this is what he tells his brothers, one day I'm going to be standing and all of you are going to bow down to me. I would have kept that to myself. But he shares that with his brothers and notice what it says. They hated him all the more. And then you read in verse 17 of Genesis 37, So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them near Dothan. He went out to find them while they were working in the field. Joseph was daddy's favorite. He didn't work in the field. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. But my point is unbridled anger often leads to uncontrollable hate. They hated him. And then you get to the sixth stage. Uncontrollable hate sometimes leads to murder. I told you earlier that we've had two couples in our church, both married for years, where the husband ended up killing the wife. I guarantee you on their wedding day, when they exchanged vows, when they exchanged rings, when they said things like, for better, for worse, till death us do part, they didn't include this kind of death. They didn't include murder, so so what happened? (laughs) Well, they loved each other unconditionally, 
But somewhere along the way, there was an expectation that wasn't met, which created an offense. And the offense was never dealt with. It was never resolved. And that led to anger. And the anger grew until it became hate. And one day it appeared in their mind that the only option was to commit murder. So let me ask you, what's the one thing that can short-circuit this process? And the answer is this. It's unconditional forgiveness. Think about this. When we get to the place in our lives where we can forgive unconditionally, it allows us to go back to stage one of loving unconditionally. Let me show you an example of how hate leads to murder and then how forgiveness can lead back to love. You can see it in the story of Jacob and Esau. If you're familiar with the story, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau was the older brother. Jacob was the younger brother. And Jacob, the younger brother, tricks his older brother out of his birthright, his blessing, which meant basically this. For a Jewish family, the oldest son got twice, his amount, twice the amount of the inheritance of the younger son. And so Jacob goes in and sees his father Isaac and tricks him, and he gets the birthright. He gets the blessing. He gets twice the inheritance. So you read in Genesis 27, verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob. By the way, it literally says Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing his father had given him, he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. In other words, my dad's gonna die soon. I'm not gonna do anything as long as my dad is alive. But when my dad dies, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So he hates Jacob. He's gonna kill Jacob. Jacob's not an idiot. He figures out what's going on, so he runs for his life. My point is simply this, hate leads to murder. But let me show you how forgiveness can lead back to love. 20 years go by since Jacob leaves home. Isaac, their father, dies. And Jacob decides after a while, I'm gonna take my chances. I'm gonna return home. And so Jacob, he, he's heading home and he's approaching the homestead. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 33, verse one. It says that Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So Esau had gotten word that Jacob was returning and he heads out to meet Jacob with 400 men. Now, if you're Jacob and you stole your brother's birthright and blessing, and you know that his intention was to kill you, what are you thinking as he's coming out to meet you with 400 men? You're thinking, this is it, this is curtains, this is the way it all ends. But look at what happens in Genesis 33, verse four. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now here's my question. How does Esau go from hating Jacob so much that he wants to murder him to now loving him, embracing him, kissing him, so happy to see him that he, he sheds tears of joy? It's because, see, somewhere in that 20-year period, Esau made the decision, I'm going to forgive my brother whether he deserves it or not. You know what it's called? It's called grace. In fact, do you know how you really forgive? You forgive by giving grace. And how do you give grace? Well, to be able to give grace, guess what? You have to receive grace. 
I'm telling you, you cannot give grace if you haven't received grace. Let me say it another way. If you have a problem giving forgiveness, you have a problem receiving forgiveness. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying if you don't receive freely, you're not going to give freely. In the same way, if you feel like you have to earn forgiveness from God, you will make people earn forgiveness from you. That's tweetable. Let me just say that again. If you feel like you have to earn forgiveness from God, you will make people earn forgiveness from you. But I'm telling you, once you understand, once you receive grace from God, once you understand that when God forgave you, he forgave you totally and unconditionally, even when you didn't deserve to be forgiven, you will begin to feel, forgive other people in your life who from your perspective, they don't deserve to be forgiven. I was just talking to somebody after last week's message about how do you honor your parents, and we talked about it. at some points you just have to make the choice to forgive them. And their response to me was, but they were wrong. They were wrong. And my response to them was, of course they were wrong. I mean, you don't forgive people who are right. You don't forgive people who treat you the way you want to be treated. You don't, you don't forgive people who are nice to you. You don't forgive people for baking you a cake, bringing you cookies, giving you tickets to a game. You forgive people because they've hurt you and because they've offended you. Now, as I said at the beginning, I'm not really all that concerned that you're going to go out and, and break the sixth commandment, that you're going to actually go out and take someone's life. But I am concerned that you may fall into the trap in your relationships of not forgiving the people that have hurt you. And then that hurt becomes anger. And over time, it becomes hate. And it leads to the death of a relationship. That's why I think Jesus said what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus, just so you know, that's what you've heard. I'm raising the bar. I tell you that anyone who is angry at a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, you may be listening and maybe someone has hurt you and there's lots of anger and angst and, and, and maybe even hatred and maybe you're feeling a little convicted right now. That's good. Not, condemnation is not good. Romans 8.1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We never need to feel condemned. But sometimes when we're out of step with what God wants us to do, it's, it's good to feel convicted. Because see, when God begins to work in our life, when he begins to convict us, you know what he does? He also gives the ability to us to forgive the people that have hurt us, that have offended us. And when you do that, you'll find healing. The thing is, you got to do your part. Kind of reminds me of the story in John chapter 5 where Jesus ran into the paralytic, the man that day who had been paralyzed, I think, 38 years, been laying there paralyzed 38 years. And, and it seems that Jesus asked him the weirdest question. Jesus says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And the guy says, yeah. And Jesus says, okay, do your part. Get up and walk. 
In the same way, this is what I would say to you this weekend. Do you want to be healed? Do, do you want to get well? Do you want to get rid of all that angst and anger and turmoil that you're feeling in your life? I would say do your part and forgive. And God will do his part. And he will heal you. Let's pray. Father, I realize that this is a tough subject that we're discussing this weekend. Very emotional topic. My guess is every one of us, including myself, we've all been hurt. We've all been abused. People have let us down. But Father, would you teach us how to love totally and unconditionally as you have loved us and how to forgive totally and unconditionally as you have forgiven us. And may today be a fresh start. May today be a fresh start. May we find healing. May we get well. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.